You know, normally I wait a few minutes before getting going. I guess I waited a couple of minutes. I usually wait more than that, but today I just can't. There's there's just too much to get to. Uh, hi, everybody. Let me make sure everything is working here on my end the way that it's supposed to be. Yep, it sure is. Okay. Hey, guys. What a big one. Episode 175 of my live chat. Hi, my name is Luke Thomas. Uh, this is my personal YouTube channel. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Yes, I locked my door because my daughter's coming home from school. Uh, it is uh, the 12th of October, 2023. Man, there is so much to get to. It's almost like shocking how much has happened. And quickly at that, <clears throat> let's see. UFC 294 got completely turned upside down, right? Kamaru Usman now in for Paulo Costa against Hamza Chimaev. Winner gets a title shot. What? How did that happen? We'll talk about it, I suppose. I'm going to assume there's a series of questions for that. Then on top of it, you have Volkanovski subbing in to have the rematch with Islam Makachev. Obviously, Charles Oliveira is out. That's crazy. <coughs> and then on top of it, the UFC is kicking USADA to the curb. And Dana White just went on Pat McAfee's show and said that their public... Well, Travis Tiger and their who was the CEO of, of USADA and then the public messaging that they had yesterday, he called it scumbagism. I mean, trouble in paradise, folks. Wow. What a, you know, sometimes we do these chats and there's really not much to get to. And sometimes you have to kind of dig really deep into the bag and see what's there. That's not the problem today. In fact, the problem today is I don't even know if we're going to have enough time, but you guys know how this works. So please give me a thumbs up. That'd be so kind. There's a poll you can take. Do you think USADA was good for UFC slash MMA? Yes, no, or don't know, not sure. Would love to see what the poll results poll results are for that. I would imagine that my opinion is not going to be yours and vice versa, but let's see where it actually comes out. I'd be curious. And as you guys know, we'll do this for free for about an hour or so. If you want to get in a paid question, we can get to those towards the end. Okay. And hey, if you all become a, a, a the, the second tier of membership, you can contribute to that latter part for free right? You can do that for free. So would be great. Would be great if you did all of that. But if you just want to watch for free, you just want to take it all in for free. Hey, man, I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. With that out of the way, boys and girls, let us get this party started. Yeah, boy, it has been one. It has been one. It has been quite a week, and it's only Thursday. And also, I didn't even mention this. Logan Paul got hit with a microphone that Dylan Dan has chucked at him at point-blank range, and maybe he's cut now. I don't know, which would mean Mike Perry has to sub in. Let me just be very clear about this. If Dylan Danis has to fight in any kind of boxing or MMA context, maybe less so MMA, but even then I think he would still do the same thing. Certainly in a striking-only contest, he would work Dylan Danis like a summer job. So... Folks have rightly noted if that ends up happening, Dennis would almost certainly withdraw from the fight, which I would understand uh, candidly. So um, I don't look great because I literally was working out in my front yard right before today's show. So uh, I look like shit, but you guys already know that. That's not new. That's not in any way interesting. That's not in any way all that relevant. Okay, so let's see. We put up the thread yesterday. You guys filled it up. You guys vote to the top what you like. Let's take a look at what you got, and we'll go from there. Throw that up here. Here we go. Let me do something first very quickly, if I may. We'll do that. There we are. And then let's change it to this one. Okay. Very good. All right. First question. Let's see. Uh, good afternoon, Luke. On a scale of one to BC watching straw weights, yeah, pants around his ankles. 
How far did your pants drop when you heard that UFC was not renewing their contract with USADA? In all seriousness, do you see them simply not replacing them, replacing them with something similar or even something completely internal? How will this affect the sport going forward? You might be surprised at how um, I'm not as pleased with it as you might imagine. Now, certainly, I, there's no love lost between me and um, USADA. I, I'd be happy to see them go. I think that the level of zealotry that they introduced to the sport is really not justifiable. And then, you know, I did a whole, I think, 40 or 45 minute piece on this yesterday for MK. If you guys haven't seen it, you can go check it out. And, you know, basically, I sort of point out like there's a contradiction in their whole entire mission where they're claiming to uphold the rights of clean versus dirty, which, by the way, is a a framing from the propaganda wars of the war on drugs just so you know like this whole idea that like everyone understands it to be dirty and everyone understands it to be clean this labeling only happened as a borrowing from propaganda from the war on drugs but neither here nor there that they want to uh, uphold the rights of clean athletes and yet in order to do that they have to overrun their rights to privacy and as i also mentioned none of these people actually ever bought into the system they try and introduce like hey we people you, i think travis tiger did an interview with mma fighting where he was saying, you know, we, we had, you know, uh, UFC fighters begging us. I mean, I'm sure there were definitely some people that absolutely wanted it, but no one freely entered that system. No one voluntarily entered that system. They were all coerced. And therefore, in my mind, none of it was ethical and none of it was ever justified. Now, that's my position. Yours may differ, but that's the sort of the basic gist and where I come down on this. So them departing to me is great news. However, I, you know, since that time, uh, I've talked to a few folks and I've gotten some... Uh, droplets of information my understanding and i want to be very clear about this this is incomplete and not verified information but my understanding is they're not just going to go back to like what bellator or pfl was doing previously which is hey we're just going to leave it to the commissions um, i think that kind of approach does make sense for a bellator and i think it did make sense for pfl pfl you know, deciding to go with USADA, just and, and then just culling their roster basically to do it. Um, I, I don't know how wise that was in retrospect, but my understanding is they're going to get some other kind of anti-doping agency involved. But but the way it's been explained to me, and I want to be, I'm, I cannot issue as, I cannot be clear about this. None of this is confirmed. Please understand you should take anything I'm about to say with a grain of salt or wait for the real confirmation. But from what I understand, they want to use another anti-doping agency, which would handle basically, as you would imagine, the ins and outs of a testing and or collection policy, right? Somebody has to show up to these guys' houses. They have to collect the urine samples. They have to collect the blood samples. Those blood samples then have to be transported and taken to an accredited laboratory. They have to be tested thoroughly. The results have to be administered and so forth. So there's this process of like who's going to handle the actual nuts and bolts of the anti-doping side of things. My understanding is they're going to bring in another kind of uh, competing agency in order to do that. The part where it gets kind of interesting to me is it's not at all clear to me that and from what I've been told, that whatever agency is brought in is going to have any sanctioning power. Like, in other words, they're just going to handle the mechanical responsibilities of what an anti-doping policy would look like. Again, someone has to collect this stuff. Someone has to transport it. Someone has to take it to a lab. They have to have a good kind of lab. The lab has to run a certain kinds of test results. And, and by the way, like those can be customized depending on what you need or what you're looking for. All of these things revolve around costs too. So costs can be a function of all of this. 
But my understanding is, again, this is from what I'm hearing, from what I'm hearing, the UFC would retain control over punishment. Now, we should be very clear that I don't know that for a fact. Uh, I don't know how that's going to be administered. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what kind of punishments they're going to hand out. Remember, USADA uses a more Olympic cycle of punishment, right? These two-year, four-year, sometimes eight-year bans that are designed to mimic the um, the Olympic cycles from which they that's, – that's the predominant amount of work that they do. And, of course, one of the arguments against that is why are we using Olympic cycle punishments – for athletes who aren't on Olympic cycles at all. Uh, it becomes onerous in that particular case. Anyway, I, I'm not going to get back into that. If you guys want to hear my views on the problems with USADA, please go check out that, that video I did on Morning Combat. But I think what we need to sort of wrap our heads around is my main argument against, not my main, one of my main arguments against USADA is aforementioned, that the fighters never had a choice. Right in in any other uh, professional sport where there is some kind of athlete association or union, all of the anti doping protocol is negotiated in conjunction with both the league as well as the fighter or excuse me the athlete union or again association. These are collectively bargained, right? And some might say, well, that weakens them a little bit, right? It, this is the inherent contradiction of anti doping. In order to protect the athletes and their various rights you do have to weaken some of the anti-doping protocol. Like there's a natural tension between them. And I think that should be a light bulb for folks about how invasive some of these processes can be when they're unchecked, which is one of the main arguments that I have made and that these gentlemen have made over and over and over and over again. It's not that there is no role for anti-doping in sport. It is that unchecked anti-doping runs over the rights of athletes. Well, if the UFC is only, again, we're speaking in if here, if the UFC is hiring a anti-doping agency to run the mechanics of it, but ultimately they're the ones in charge of like what tests get brought to the public light, what kind of punishments get handed out, blah, 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 then the UFC is now asserting some degree of control over this process, yet another layer of control to the vast amount of control that they already have. I don't know that that's a great thing, to be honest with you. So like... Am I happy to see USADA go? They, 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 they couldn't leave fast enough for me. They're not the solution to anything. However, we should be very, very careful. And if, if you join me, perhaps you do not, but if you share any of the same kinds of views that I do around this particular issue, then we should be very, very careful about how happy we are about USADA's departure when it could... I'm not declaring to you that it will, but if it could mean the UFC exerting yet more control over the process, and then they're the ones picking winners and losers, and I'm using that in the broadest sense, not that they're like, um, I'm not literally saying that they're, you know, fixing fights. That's not in any way what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in the broader sense, if they're the ones in control of punishment, they're the ones in control of the process, if the process becomes less transparent and it's all favoring the UFC, that's not necessarily a great thing either. That's not, that's not, that would not to me be that great of a trade, uh, candidly. Each version has benefits and trade offs, right? The, the one benefit, there could be many, but let's, okay, so let's say it this way. One of the benefits that you might get from the USADA system is that it is third party and therefore they're in control of it. They're, they have some sanctioning capacity. Um, and, you know, they act, as, they, they're not in house, right? So there's a degree of separation between the private company's interests and then their, 
and what they do. But if you bring that to a degree in-house and then you remove the sanctioning capacity, now the UFC controls that, is that really a great thing? I don't know if that's a great thing either. So, you know, we have to be, we have to separate these situations a little bit. Am I happy to see USADA go? Yep. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. But my recommendation, this has been, I, I, I don't know why they don't, they, I, I, well, they could go this route. I actually don't know if they're not going to go this route. But the thing that I think makes the most sense is VADA, the Voluntary Anti-Doping Association, because what they do, or, or agency, I forget what the last A stands for, because what they do is they get athlete buy-in. Uh, the athlete elects to participate because they are independent contractors. They don't have a union. They don't have an association. They don't have anybody who can collectively bargain on their behalf. And so if you really want them to participate in some kind of rigorous anti-doping program, you are required, at least on the boxing side, to get them to buy into it. They have to they have to agree to it. And most of the major headliners, um, I need to be careful about saying that. I'll say this. Many of the major headliners do, in fact, enroll in the system. So um, is it a perfect system? Of course not. There's never going to be any kind of perfect anti-doping system. Nothing. There's nothing that's... People like, no testing. That's not a great system either. Some testing, that's probably not a great system. Hardcore testing and then vast punishment, that ain't a great system. There's really no great way to deal with drugs and sport. And there's also really no one size fits all model. Um, I think a lot of these situations have to be adjusted according to um, the realities of the sport, what kind of rights the athlete has, what kind of control over the process they have or not, and then finding some kind of fair uh, way to thread the needle from sport to sport, need to need, the athlete demands will be different based on the sport. I mean, there's all different kinds of ways. So this idea, USADA's view is that the, you know, one size fits all, like doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what sports you are. It doesn't matter what it's comprised of. It doesn't matter if you're an Olympic cycle. This is our approach. This is what they call the gold standard. Let's just pave everything flat. And this is what we do. And um, I don't really think that's a very rational or good policy. And again, I keep asking for what the evidence is that they made a tremendous difference. I saw folks saying, well, they caught more than the athletic commissions. A, that's not saying a lot. And B, that doesn't tell me jack shit. Tell me what you did. In like, remember, people said the sport got safer with USADA's involvement. Well, if you're going to say that, you got to prove that. You don't get to just declare that without providing summary um, evidence for that claim. And as of uh, October 12th, 2023, no evidence, no information to that degree, um, to my knowledge, has ever been provided. I've seen a lot of circumstantial leading in different directions, but no one actually being able to prove um, some of those claims. So we will see. Am I happy to see USADA go? Sure. I didn't think they were very um, helpful to begin with. But we should be wary about what could potentially, potentially be next if it ends up being a system where the UFC is now able to retain more control over these independent contractors. I think most of us would be wary about a situation like that in any particular dimension, whether it's anti-doping or any other one. So I don't know those things to be the case. I can only tell you what what like kind of messaging I've heard from a few different folks, but the, but the messaging is all the same uh, for whatever that's worth. So we shall see. We shall see. But you guys, did you see Dana on uh, Pat McAfee? Boy, he was... He was letting, he was letting, uh, I don't know if you mentioned Travis Tigert by name, but he was letting USADA have it. He was letting him have it, man. He was pissed. So there we go. Also, he says, thanks for the incredible content. Congratulations on 500 episodes of MK. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, da, 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 da. 
Okay, so this one doesn't have a bunch of likes, but it's a great question. So I'm going to pull it up right here. Hello, Luke. Uh, at first, 294 looks like a disaster, but now it looks even more interesting. Careful with that. Chemaya versus Usman should be really an interesting fight. It looks like a harder fight for Chemaev. What should Chemaev focus on now, and how should he change his game plan? Um, does he have game plan? <laughs> I don't know that he has. I mean, I'm sure that he does. He trains with good people and great coaches, so I'm sure that he does. But it does like in that Gilbert fight, did it look to you like he was adhering to a game plan? Didn't look that way to me. All right, let me say something about all those changes. So we went from Makachev Oliveira to and Hamzat versus Costa. And I know Ikram Alaskarov now is fighting Varley Alves. He was supposed to fight Nasruddin Imavov. But forget that one for just a second. Now we've got Volk coming in for a rematch. By the way, folks were kind of bitter at me last week when I was asked, like, you know, who had a better year, MMA or boxing? And I had said boxing by a long stretch and because you had Spence Crawford. And folks were saying, but well, you had Volk Islam. Fair enough. I did miss that in the calculus. I still don't think that changes my answer in part because, one, the result was not as satisfying in Volk and Islam, although it was a tremendous fight. Please don't misunderstand me. But what I would say is that one didn't have the massive buildup and the anticipation that Spence Crawford did. So, okay, it was a, it was a reasonably fair correction. What I'd like to say here, though, is in both these cases with Usman and, and Volkanovsky, Usman doesn't have the history with Shemaev, but you got guys coming in off 11 or 12 days notice or something like that. And in, and, and in Usman's case, going up a weight class as well. I know that, and I would agree, if you ask the question, does UFC 294 look better on paper now than it did before, I think you can easily answer yes. Some of that's going to be subjective, but that's not a very hard argument to make. Like, yes, like the, it does look better in many, many ways than it did before. However, the 11-day quotient, especially in the case of Volkanovsky having surgery, which had to sideline him in some kind of way, and then with Usman, you know, it's only a three-round fight, so I have a little bit less concern. Obviously, the Volkanovsky fight with Islam is going to be five rounds, so that does change it. Okay, fair enough. But Usman did not look great again. I mean, he looked okay in his last fight, but not great. Now he's going up a weight class, and then the winner gets a title shot? Like, I'm not mad if Chimaev goes in there and beats the, the, the bags off of him and gets a title shot, but if you're Drickus, you're like, dude, what the fuck, man? How am I – what is happening here? Like, this doesn't make any sense at all, right? Because he had to go through Robert Whitaker to get a title shot, right? He had to go through Robert Whitaker, uh, aside from all the other names. He had to go through Robert Whitaker to get a title shot. Like, dude, that's fucking hard to do. Shemaev, who's been off forever, is going to come in here and then just blast through the guy who hasn't fought at 185 in this organization ever, if memory served. I don't think he's ever fought at 185. And he gets a title shot off that. Like, that's weird. Like, if he goes in there and beats Usman, like beating Usman, even a compromised and bloated version, if that's what we may end up getting, which we may not, but like we have to at least consider that. Like, what does that even mean? Like, what is the value of that? It, it certainly means something if he's able to do it, right? It certainly is valuable. Like, even beating a bloated, ill-prepared Usman can't be easy. But what's the real significance? This is why, like, getting title shots and like, and, and then, you know, there is no mandatory status in MMA, but getting something approximating that is really valuable. 
because I can tell you what the value is of beating a fully ready Robert Whitaker. It's high, very high, super high. Like that is very validating. And he stopped him too, right? Kind of easily. Uh, I mean, that's a little strong, but you know, he, 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 he whooped him. It was, it was a great win. Like that, you can you can easily ascertain what the value of that is. It's harder to ascertain what the value of this one might be. And if he struggles, what does that mean too? It's just really hard to know. So I wouldn't be opposed if if Hamzat won, especially if he looked really good for whatever that might mean, if he got a title shot. But it does raise some questions. On the same side, like, dude, who's going to complain about Islam Volk too? Nobody. Like, it's... Again, it's one of the better fights you can make in the sport, dot, 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 when it's properly set up. Like, do I want Islam Volk 2 on 11 days notice? Well, I'd put it this way. If the choice is 11 days notice or not at all, sure, 11 days notice, fine, right? No problem. If the choice is it doesn't have to be 11 days notice, we're just making it this way to save the card, then I'm like... I don't, you know, what are you going to get out of Volkanovsky? I don't really know. I don't really know. Like, here's the other part too, right? Islam's been ready this whole time, and, you know, it's a slightly different game plan and blah, blah, blah. But what if, what if he goes in there, and I'm just going to posit a scenario. Now, uh, let me say this. If Volkanovsky goes in there and beats Islam Makachev off surgery, off the couch, on 11 days' notice, that will be one of the most remarkable things you'll ever see. Truly would be one of the most remarkable things you ever see. But for that reason, because it is so difficult to do, I mean, it's hard to beat him fresh with a full camp, right? Much less on a, in a five-round fight, much less under the conditions that Volkanovsky is attempting it. You know, it's one thing to juggle chainsaws. Now let's light them on fire. You know what I mean? Like, it's, he's attempting a very, very, very difficult task. You have to go beat the champion of the weight class up who you already fought once on a full camp. You didn't win. It was close, but you didn't win. Now you got to beat him under even worse conditions a second time around. So you have the benefit of hindsight and what you learned the first time, but you have very little ability to prepare and iron out the details in order to, to win. So what if Islam goes in there and just kind of wins a ho-hum decision because Volkanovski is just too compromised, you know, let's say in the championship rounds, cardio isn't there, whatever just doesn't look quite like himself and Islam kind of cruises to a victory. But will it have been worth it? These are questions we have, we have to deal with. So what I'm going to say is on paper, it absolutely looks better. No question. And there are ways in which it could end up delivering massively, massively. Those scenarios are on the table and we should be respectful and appreciative of that. But we just can't sideline the other scenarios that could also play a role because they might be inconvenient or we don't want to give them credence. Like Usman going in there and shitting the bed is possible or, you know, some version of that. Same thing with Volkanovsky. Hey, he made an attempt at it, but you can just tell he just wasn't ready. And then you're not going to get a third one off that, right? You're just in very unlikely you're going to get a third one off that. So it's risky. It's risky. It's risky as hell. All right, let's see here. Put this down just a little. Here we go. Luke, assuming Benil Dariush hasn't fallen off a cliff and Saryukian hasn't made a massive leap in his development, I could see that being a difficult fight for Saryukian. Fuck yeah, I can. Particularly if Benil's takedown defense resembles what it did against Gamrot. What are you looking for when both of them fight? 
obviously with Saryukian, his kickboxing needs to develop, but he, I'm not saying he can't win without the wrestling, but I don't think he can beat Dariush without the wrestling. If the wrestling is shut down, he's in trouble because he doesn't have the kind of Muay Thai that um, Dariush does. Also, one thing that people just continuously sleep on is, dude, Dariush has fought world-class competitors for a long time. He is a highly experienced competitor. And it didn't do him great against Oliveira. Fair enough. You know, that's Oliveira's tough. But the level of experience that he has against guys, you know, and he defensively outgrappled the guy who kind of sort of outgrappled Saryuki. And now you don't want to play too much MMA math with that, but yeah, dude, that's a real, I've been saying Saryuki should have been taking slightly easier fights to kind of work on some of his other things. And now he's in the deep end, man. Benil Dariush is the deep end, the super deep end. He's not unbeatable, but he is a real, real litmus test for the elites. You know, what is he, eight and one since that loss to, to uh, what you call it, to uh, Hernandez? You know, I mean, he's tough, tough guy. Very, very well-rounded, very experienced. Um, so you're asking, like, what I want to see. You have to see Saryukian's game working. I don't think you can expect this to be the fight where, like, the striking blooms all of a sudden. You would certainly want to see incremental improvement in that regard, but I don't think you can expect from what you got the last time to this time for there to be some gigantic leap. And obviously it has been improving over time, but dude, Darius's strike, go back and look at Darius's striking style. It's mean. It's mean. He's the nicest guy on earth, but his striking is brutal, tough, hard-nosed, right? Um, that's a very tough fight for Saryukin. Super tough. Like, if he lost that, that would not in any way be surprising to me. Let me jump ahead to one here. Okay. Luca, happy uh, end of USADA era day. I'm happy for you. I'm interested to know how you think VADA would work or be a straightforward solution for the UFC. I get that it's voluntary, and I only have a casual understanding of how it works in boxing. But as I understand it, yes, it's voluntary. But if you want to be in the, I think, WBC rankings, you have to be signed up. I believe that's correct, yes. So that's pushing the definition of voluntary a bit, to an extent, yes. And then per athlete or per fight, maybe it charges something like 20 or 30 grand to be used. That seems impractical for most of the UFC roster. Is my understanding completely wrong about all this? So, no, I don't think your understanding is wrong. But if you were to use VADA, whatever costs the UFC was associating, remember, the costs for USADA were labeled under athlete compensation. I haven't talked about that on Rogan show three years now ago, three years ago this month, actually <laughs> three years ago this month, been a long time, man. Jesus. Um, I hate to keep him bringing it up because the shit is outdated, but, but that portion of the conversation is not remember it's under athlete compensation. So that would be something that I believe. Um, and by the way, Vada has been very clear that the UFC could support uh, a VADA program. UFC does have the money to support a VADA program if they wanted to go that direction. Again, I don't know if they will or if they won't. Um, I don't really have, you know, a, a, a bat phone into Dana's office, but my understanding is that the, that's the direction that it, if they wanted to go, they could easily afford it or, you know, reasonably afford it, I suppose. Um, just trying to see something here very quickly. Yes. Okay. Very good. Um, so yeah, that would be the answer there is that it would not be up to, you can't charge just the fighter. They would not have the requisite 
money unless they were just the most A-list of A-list of A-list. And WBC and or PBC or a top rank or matchroom doesn't have the overhead necessarily to pay for that. But the way in which UFC has such control of the industry, and again, they make 90, 90 cents of every dollar earned in the industry, they do have the overhead for that. So it would be, to me, it would fall back on them. They already are paying for USADA. They're already going to pay whoever the substitute USADA will be. They're already going to pay for them too. This would be no different in that way. Um, so you're right that WBC makes it a requirement, I believe, to get ranked. But of course, there's the WBO, there's WBA, there's IBF. Like there's ways around it if you guys, or if certain A-list guys want to be around it. But many, if not most of the A-list guys that I have covered have been a part of that. Uh, let me go back one here if I can. Look, as you've mentioned before, boxing's had a pretty fantastic year with three more unifications still to go. Fury Usyk, I can't pronounce this dude's name, versus uh, Gualtieri. And then Rodriguez versus Edwards alongside multiple high-profile boxers. I believe this is what a, this is a light heavyweight contest at 175. I can't remember anymore. Alongside multiple high-profile bouts, I want to ask, why do you think this may be? Sometimes it's by chance, but I like to think there are material reasons as to why there might have been a higher number of the best fight and the best in boxing as of late. Number one, it's high more high-profile when they do that, which means if they're going to go on pay-per-view, they're going to make more money. But I have asked BC this question, like, why is it that relative to 10 years ago when we were covering the Floyds and the Pacquiao's, and Pacquiao kind of went for it too for the most part until it got a little bit later, but in general, you know, in that Floyd era, why do things feel so different now than then? And his answer is they're just electing to do it more. The fighters are simply electing to go for it. It's a volunteer army in boxing. It's a volunteer army. You have to just kind of make it worth their while. But, of course, you, you look at Ryan Garcia, I'm sure he regrets losing to Tank. But, you know, and seeing how big of an event that he was able to create, it was a bit of an eye-opener. Spence and Crawford said the same thing. Remember what Spence said to Crawford at the at their weigh-ins? He was like, you know, congratulations to both of us. We're going to make bank. They knew that upping the ante, upping the risk, and Spence even said this explicitly, like we've got to get to a place in boxing where we show TV networks, where we show promoters, where we show fans, where we show other boxers that taking on risk, win or lose, that's the name of the game. It has bigger rewards. You know, sometimes it can have some bad penalties, but it's got great rewards as well. And you can decide for yourself whether that's been true for Spence or anybody else. But in BC's estimation, look, what Floyd did in how he carefully selected the path he took. First of all, Floyd fought hammers. Let's be very clear about that. Some of them were selectively timed. That is also true. But Floyd is Floyd. Like, Floyd can do things that the rest, both in the ring and out of the ring, he can do things that the rest of the boxing establishment, including other A-list guys, simply cannot do. They cannot do. And there were a lot of people trying to copy that who were not Floyd, who didn't have his resume, who didn't have his cachet, who didn't have the fan base, who didn't have the ability to attract a lucrative B-side. Like, it just didn't work. It can work for Floyd in the way that it did. It, it didn't work for everyone else. And now we're in an era, and it won't last forever, but now we're in an era where guys are at least going for it because they do believe there's some reward. It does create bigger events. It does create bigger paychecks. It does create, when you win, certainly more glory. And they're just more willing to kind of go for it. Of course, there are exceptions to this rule. I know a lot of people want Canelo to fight David Benavidez, not the Jermel Charlos of the world. Yeah, fair enough. There's you know, there's going to be plenty of things you can point to Um in one direction or another where this is not happening, but to the point you raised, like why has this been a great year in boxing? Because the boxers 
are electing to accept more risk for more glory in ways they did not 10 years ago. It's really as simple as that. The, the mentality has shifted. The attitude has changed. And how long that will last? <laughs> you know, it could, it could end on January 1, 2024, to be honest with you. Like, just because boxing had a great year in 2023, and it did, does not mean it's going to have a great year in 2024. But for this moment, right now, they just have a much better attitude about this stuff. And we are the beneficiary. Uh, good question. How much do you think the UFC's decision to part ways with USADA was influenced by the ongoing class action suit? And how do you believe it could affect the case going forward? I don't think it has anything to do with the class action suit. I think it had a lot to do with the Mark Hunt suit and the ways in which they were not exonerated explicitly, but because they were never, I mean, they were sued, but they were never charged with a crime. But um, the judge basically ruling that Mark Hunt's attempts to show that the UFC knew that Brock Lesnar was on steroids and knew that he was entering this contest um, under uh, unethical and otherwise illegal means, he could not prove that. And as long as there's no paper trail to prove, what culpability do they have? And the judge also, you'll recall, said, like, you know, um, it's not acceptable to think that every opponent you could potentially have is not on something. In other words, there's no way to 100% guarantee even with stricter testing or more defined protocol, that in every case, the promoter can guarantee that this person that is standing across the cage from you isn't on something. There's no way to do that. There's no promoter who can, I mean, you have to keep someone locked away in a basement, you know, with 24 hour seven security and observation for six months to be able to, this is not realistic. How do you, how can you guarantee that the guys fighting aren't on anything. You actually can't. You can take enough steps where you can say you put in a reasonable amount of effort to screen some of these guys out. That's true. You can do that. But the but can you guarantee? No, you cannot guarantee it. There's nothing you can do to guarantee that. And that was one of the arguments that the judge made. Like this idea that the UFC has to guarantee that the guy standing across from you is not on something. This is an untenable and otherwise... Uh, improper demand. And so I think once they were exonerated in these particular ways, they were like, right. Also, it does seem like USADA getting a little bit chirpy in public regarding Connor. Um, boy, Dana didn't like that. Dana didn't like that. I'm telling you, did you guys see what he said on Pat McAfee or uh, McAfee? I never even know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, he was pissed. He was pissed. He called it, uh, what did he call it? He called it, uh, as I mentioned before, scumbagism. Scumbagism. He was bitter. Uh, I think some of the ways in which USADA became uncomfortable with the way in which UFC wanted to conduct their business, and I'm making some estimations here, there began to be friction between the two entities. And um, I don't know exactly when it started. It does seem like either the Mark Hunt lawsuit and or the Conor McGregor situation were the particular fault lines under which not the, the Mark Hunt thing doesn't so much involve USADA, but um, I mean, it does to the extent like USADA was working the event, but like they weren't, it's not so much principally about them. It's principally about what the UFC had claimed or what Mark had claimed that they had known. But what I'm trying to say is, um, you know, there, it, the, those two situations, along with some other ones, created some real friction. And the UFC, excuse me, USADA going public with some of their 
complaints and or gripes, man, Dana didn't like that shit at all. And, um, you know, you can decide who's right or who's wrong, but yeah, you get the idea. Uh, here we go. All right. What do we got here? Someone says thoughts on mandatory drug testing for service members. Guys, I don't, (laughs) I don't give a flying fuck about drug testing. So here is my, okay. So I was in from 98 to 04. Technically I was on the inactive ready reserve from 04 to 05, but this is my experience. I don't know what the Marine Corps does now. I don't know what any of these fucking guys do now, but that's my experience, right? Two times drug testing for steroids became relevant in my career. Not to me, but like from what I observed. One, I went to 29 Palms, California in the summer of 1999. And the gym at 29 Palms, California, like this is in the middle of the Mojave Desert for folks who don't know. And the Marines out there, I had never seen Marines that big in my life. Like they were fucking hoss Marines. Like these guys were all huge because there ain't shit else to do in the middle of the desert. Especially if your job is like, oh, what are you doing in the Marine Corps? Oh, I'm a bulk fuel refiller. You know, like, what are you going to do all day? You're going to fill fill fucking planes and whatever else. And then you're just going to lift weights. You're 21 years old. You're just going to lift a ton of weights. Dude, these guys were monsters. I was told that on occasion when their units would see them get to these like out of control, disproportionate size, they would test them, but they didn't really care all that much either. That was one situation. There was another situation where the first sergeant, so any reserve unit that you're a part of, there's another kind of liaison unit called I and I they're actually active duty and they're the liaison unit for the reserve unit who might be there. So my unit was hotel battery, third Marines, um, hotel battery, three fourteen fourth marine division i believe they got converted to a rifle company certainly the marines i served with when i got out and they stayed in they went to fallujah as a rifle company they did prisoner transport there so they may no longer be an artillery battery but they were an artillery battery for the entire time that i was there they were an artillery battery for the first gulf war the first sergeant that we had there got in trouble when they went to fallujah because he was uh, committing adultery, which of course is still illegal under the ucmj the um, uniform code of military justice and they searched all his shit for this investigation around these crimes and they found that his locker was fucking just full of steroids <laughs> apparently and another bubba i know who's no longer in the marines who's actually still he's a successful he's a very successful civilian i won't say what he does but he's he, uh, it, it's all above board now he's got kids he's a good dude they caught another one of my guys who was out of the motor pool in my unit and he was dealing around all kinds of stuff both of them got yanked out of iraq and sent home I don't know what happened to the first sergeant. My guy got um, got discharged, not dishonorably, but I think other than honorable conditions. He managed to be just fine. These are the only two times in six, six years, like showing up in uniform, I ever even had to hear about it. Like from what I can tell, like the Marine Corps, and again, maybe the Army's different, maybe the Navy's different, I don't know. But in the Marine Corps, they don't give a fuck. And I got to tell you, I don't give a fuck either. Like of all the th- guys, The military cares about your health and safety to a degree. And the answer is the degree to which they care about it is for force readiness. If you can make the case that that testing uh, your rank and file enlisted or officers leads to better force readiness, 
fine. I could hear that argument, but I just don't believe that to be true. All of the vices that they allow in the military for guys to do, whether they're buying hookers, drugs, uh, the drinking in the military is certainly in the Marine Corps out of fucking control. And a lot of this shit is even celebrated and like encouraged. I can tell you anybody who's ever been to the Marine Corps ball in any capacity will tell you drinking is not something that, I mean, they might tell you to get an Uber, but they're not telling you not to booze. They're forcing it down your throat. Like it's, you know, this idea that like, we're just going to allow these things. Um, but we're not going to allow for guys to use performance sensing drugs potentially in an intelligent way. Now, again, if they're doing it in a way that's really harming their health, then fine. You will detect it. There will be, it will show up. The unit should do something about that, but you're training people you know they want to say euphemistically to protect the country and that's true that's true you're training 21 year olds to go fucking kill other people like that's the reality of the business that's what we do right i was in an artillery unit what does artillery do they send rounds 30 miles down range to go bomb shit do i care if the gun rocks on the gun line are on drugs and lifting weights i don't <laughs> like how is that relevant to mission accomplishment in any way unless it impacts force readiness. And I could tell you from what I ever saw, it never impacted force readiness. I know there was a situation with the Navy SEALs and now they want to test them because there was somebody who got affected by it. But like, again, I really just don't believe that that's something that really impacts special force operation force readiness. Like, I don't, I just don't believe it. From everything I've seen, I just don't believe it. So to me, it's a lot of like, it's a lot of officers who probably have political ambitions. By that, I mean through the ranks of the officer corps, potentially past, doing something that they feel like maybe is in good spirits and helpful, but probably more a political cover your ass kind of thing. That's what officers do. Then I can believe it. But you got to make the case to me that like testing like that meaningfully improves force readiness because I just don't believe that. I I've seen it. It doesn't do shit. Um, let's see. Oh, good question. Look, with the UFC's announcement to part ways with USADA, do you think we'll see an increase in fighters coming out of the retirement with the risk of USADA's wrath thing of the past? So let's finish the question. For example, we could we suddenly see John Jones U-turn on his <coughs> retirement plans and find a new lease of life, new lease on life, or Overeem scrap his political career in favor of a return to Uberim? Um, I think that's unlikely. Uh, first of all, Overeem has endured an enormous amount of punishment. He had a great career. I mean, he was a really decorated guy, but he had a ton of punishment. So I think that certainly is none, none of that changes. He's also older. Um, it does make it for an interesting question about like the, the TJ Dillashaws of the world who are still right now rehabbing. He seems to be having shoulder surgery all the time. I mean, his situation, you know, uh, wasn't great, right? Uh, heading into that Aljamain Sterling fight and certainly after that. So, um, so we'll see. Um, but my general view is I think it's probably unlikely. But again, it would it would really come down to what this new system is gonna be, what it's gonna look like, how it's gonna how it's gonna operate. And um I think you might see some stuff like this, but it's not like we're going from this back to TRT. Like that was the real kind of game changer for the older guys, right? So guys who were kind of in their mid-30s, had great experience. The TRT kind of rewound the clock for them. I'm not in favor of that, by the way, not for not for active competitors, unless there was a full league of it where all the guys didn't care. That's a different scenario. But just personally speaking, like 
watching what happened. It would take guys who should have been kind of aging out, rewound the clock, and now they've got all this wisdom to build on. But if they don't go back to that, there's no clear reason to think why you would have a massive change unless some new policy was in a similar kind of way affording them a new lease on the end of their career. But that seems unlikely. You can see she's right there. Uh, that seems unlikely. That seems unlikely. So I would not imagine so. You might see a couple of edge case scenarios, but unless they just go back to, hey, you can do whatever the hell you want. You know, you can get a doctor's note to go juice. I, I, I would imagine that's probably unlikely. Someone's asking, I'm visiting the D.C. Arlington area next week. Any recommendations? Email me, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. Let's see what we got here. Yeah, here's a good one. This is a great one. Uh, Luke, to what extent do you believe the UFC parted with USADA so that athletes can have more autonomy in their recovery and potentially reduce fighters pulling out of fights? Yeah, see, I got to tell you, this is the interesting one. Remember, Krokop got hemmed up because he took growth hormone to fix. He had a, I think he had shoulder surgery, if memory serves. And then his doctor prescribed growth hormone to heal the recovery and, or I think to facilitate the recovery is what I should say. And... And he got in trouble for it. Now, again, it didn't really matter because he was getting out at that time anyway, but you know, it could have caused an issue. It will be very, I will be very curious to see what these policies look like on the therapeutic end. In other words, what did Conor McGregor do? What Conor McGregor did was he decided that unilaterally that he had a traumatic injury, and he did. He had a very traumatic injury. Right. I mean, imagine a world where there's no medical science to fix that. What do you do with the rest of your life? You're on crutches or a wheelchair the rest of your life. Right. I mean, if this is 100 years ago, what they just amputate the bitch. You know what I mean? You're you're in deep trouble. He unilaterally decided that he was going to take time out to heal and he was going to get whatever he needed to. I'm going to assume within reason, but whatever he needed to from a medicinal standpoint to make sure that whatever healing he received was the highest quality so that not only could he return to the octagon, but that he could have, in his own words, quality of life with his kids. Now, it was funny. Yesterday, USADA had a statement about this, calling them, like, I think it was experimental peptides and testosterone for healing that they don't, they don't allow. Yeah, guys, that I got to tell you, USADA going out of its way to say like that's not a thing that they approve of as that's supposed to be some kind of like binding, not merely binding, but some kind of authoritative no based on like medical science. Boy, I got to tell you, I don't buy that shit even a little bit, even a little bit. This is the same organization that assured us that what Tom Lawler did was worthy of a two-year ban based on the ingestion of Osterine only to discover that the scientific methods and the processes that they had used to discover that a couple years later, they realized were no good and that, in fact, he had not done anything wrong at all. And now you want me to accept that your threshold for um, reliable medical intervention is the gold standard. Get the fuck out of my face with that. Like, just straight up, I don't trust them. I do not trust them. That's let's say I don't trust them in, in in there's no system where I trust them or there's no issue where I trust them. I'm sure on some things they they're you know, otherwise banal or well established science for some things. But like if we're talking about guys going to doctors and the doctors like, hey, listen, this could be experimental. 
but you have such a severe injury that we're going to try this or maybe not even experimental, but like, you know, we're going to do these processes because we know them to be the best for such a traumatic injury, bone fusion and the like, and it's not USADA approved. And I'm supposed to defer to them as like, that's the kind of medical intervention that we should accept as the gold standard. Why? Why? What is it about their scientific process and the methods at which they develop them knowing full well that they destroyed a guy's career, never apologized, never did anything for it, later admitted that their own science that they used to begin with was trash, and now they realize he didn't do anything. They're not going to do anything to fix that, and they admitted that the strict liability standard under which they operate, right, well, if it's in your system, you're responsible, they now know they, that that situation is untenable because, of course, you can. this is a true thing. You can literally drink water in the pharmaceutical trace can show up in it. People take their, their medicine, they, they get prescribed, they don't finish it. Like, let's say you cut yourself, you get infected, you get antibiotics. How many of you fucking idiots are going there and pouring your antibiotics down the toilet? Yeah, don't do that. First of all, if the doctor prescribes you antibiotics, take the full dose until you're done. If you can't drink during that time, it's okay, you'll live. But whatever you do, don't pour them down the fucking toilet or the sink that goes into the water supply. Like, they're right to admit that. But like all of these admissions, all of these errors in many, in many cases, in certain cases, quite costly, quite costly. Now, their version of what kinds of medical interventions for literally traumatic injuries, their assessment of what is reliable and what is good to treat these things. This is the standard. This is the medical standard that we should adhere to. Get the fuck out of here. No, like, no, under, under, under no circumstance am I deferring these decisions to them. Like the whole point about what Connor was trying to show was that like their assessment is trash. Why are we relying on that? Now, if you want to say, and I think some people have gone down this road, which is okay. Connor might have done what he needed to do to heal this injury, but if he wants to get back into the testing pool, there are things that he should have to adhere to. I'm, I'm reasonably open to that argument. What I'm not open to, what I'm just not open to at all, is the idea that the limits of what his doctor should have done is USADA approved. No. No. We're not talking about stitches. right? We're not talking about a tummy bug. We're not, even, we're not talking about any of those things. We're talking about a massive potentially life-altering injury without the kind of things that he needs. I mean, the fact that he even gets back to the... <coughs> the fact that he even gets back to the octagon is kind of remarkable to begin with. And if he's even competitive, that would be crazy too. And then if he can get like another belt, I mean, this would blow your mind, right? But the idea that those decisions should be farmed out to the USADA-approved standard seems to me not merely insane, but reckless. If that happened to you, if your leg had snapped in the way that McGregor's had, and of course, this is also a function of what kind of wealth he has. I mean, let's be honest about that. Uh, but if your doctor came to you and said, I have this set of treatments. And then you thought it was like, but you can only do this. What are you going to do? Just be serious for a moment. This is, I, I, I don't even understand how this is a debate. You can have a debate about what he should do to get back into the system. Fine fine but like my doctor can't give me the things that are good for me in a not just any ordinary situation like a routine one where some of the USADA protocol I think does make sense we're talking about a traumatic one 
Like, you need to do anything and everything that your best medical advice and qualified medical professionals tell you to do in order to regain function and quality of life. Period. Period. That's the standard. That's the gold standard. Not what USADA says. So, uh, I, 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 I'm very curious to see what they end up doing with it. And, um, in terms of recovery and what fighters can or can't do in order to facilitate recovery, uh, it will be interesting to see. We're going to have to go through whatever system they put in place and see how good it is. I don't, you know, I obviously don't have an answer for you, but I very much challenge and question this idea that like, oh, he was using experimental peptides and testosterone to heal. Yeah, good for him. Good. I'm glad he did. And it and it, it looks to me like it worked great. So, um, yeah. All right. Quantum physics question. Yeah, I'm the wrong guy for that. That's a question for my brother. My brother's got a PhD in math. Oh, here's a great, great question. Uh, did you catch Tony Ferguson's comments to Ariel about how once Habib left the sport, he didn't feel the same afterwards based on how badly he wanted to fight Habib? While it would be silly to blame this squarely on Tony's decline, I personally would look to the Gaethje fight, but what are your thoughts on this and how would it factor in with everything surrounding Tony over his losing streak? I mean, to me, there's really no way to tell the story of this last chapter of Tony's career without the damage he incurred in the Gaethje fight. It's such a pivotal moment and such a, uh, uh, it was, uh, I remember, God, I remember I was sitting in this chair when I watched it. I was just like, Oh my God, dude, someone's got to call this off, man. This is horrific to watch. Um, I believe Tony, I believe Tony. I, People want to make it out to be like one set of factors or another. I think the biggest set of factors is he got a little bit older. The injuries probably didn't help. The beating he took against Gaethje, I think, was a real uh, undeniable turning point. But is it possible that in conjunction with that, that this kind of North Star that he had that got taken away, like could that have been uh, an influencing factor in his motivation and otherwise desire to be there or his overall level of competitiveness. Yes. I think that actually could uh, help explain some of it as well. I don't think that that's crazy. I don't think that's in any way wrong for Tony to say that. I think he's probably telling the truth. It, I, if he's saying it, it, you know, it doesn't supplant what happened in the Gaethje fight as the reason, but could you throw another log onto the fire, so to speak about all of the reasons and what, what had an effect and what didn't. Yeah, sure. Sure. I can understand that. I don't think that's crazy at all. Um, I think that was a really, it was a big change in his life. Although that, that whole chapter, right? Habib going and the Gaethje fight and everything. He was getting older. Um, his top rival no longer in the sport. He took a bad beating. Like all of this was just a crazy time. And he came out the other end a little bit different for more than one or two reasons. Yeah, sure. Sure. I can, I can totally accept that. Uh, it's just the last, the last thing I say, and I said it before, it's just, it would not supplant for me what happened against Gaethje, but I can understand how that would make a difference. Yeah, sure. I don't think that's crazy at all. Mm -mm. Um, yeah, I don't know how much I want to say too much about this, but I'll say some, I suppose I've been very quiet about it on purpose. Um, 
Any thoughts on on the attack on Israel by Hamas and the vast amount of people defending Hamas in Palestine? I've been an avid listener of yours since Sirius XM. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that you have a vast amount of people defending Hamas. By the way, Hamas is deeply unpopular by huge swaths of uh, Muslim populations and Arab populations. You should know that. And especially in the last, what was it? There was a poll done in 2017. Um, they're in this, they're in the teens in places like Egypt, in places like Saudi Arabia. Like they're not well liked by, I think even in the Palestinian territories, their um, favor, uh, favorable uh, rating has dropped significantly as well. Um, so listen, guys, let me just tell you my story very quickly. My mom grew up in Beirut, Lebanon. I grew up being, um, being told about the situation involving Palestinians, nothing has changed in my life except it's all gotten worse. It's all gotten worse. Um, the reality is this. Uh, I do think that the occupation has been bad in many ways for uh, Israel, right? I mean, what they've had to do to maintain the occupation and how, to what extent it's undermined its democratic efforts and what uh, policies they've had to take in order to uphold it have been... Uh, burdensome would be putting it lightly and i think it's been certainly a disaster since 67 for the palestinians there's simply no denying um the the way which gaza gets described I, by the way i was talking to my dad about this apparently i've been through gaza i remember going into egypt um i didn't realize we had gone through gaza at that time this was what 1987 um i don't think it was very developed at that point not and it's being turned into ash now but you know the people who called it an open air prison was the um, chief of Israeli intel, you know, so that's not like some Palestinian making that up. It's blockaded. The Egyptians don't want them on the West Bank side. The Jordanians, even though 6 million Jordanians of Palestinian ancestry, they don't want them. And, um, you know, there is just increasing, increasing settler growth into the West Bank. And I don't think any of these things are good for Israel. And I don't think they're good for Palestinians. And so to me, um, you know, as a general orientation, I think that you know, I think that Israel has tried a lot of different things other than um, granting Palestinians what they have asked for. And I don't think it's worked out well for either party um, at all. Obviously, much worse for the Palestinians, given that there is an occupying force and then an occupied people since, again, since 1967. So let me just say this, though. But what Hamas did is, it's just... Utterly indefensible, <laughs> like utterly indefensible. Um, you know, they, dude, they attacked a rave. Like, it doesn't matter who the party is. Attacking civilians is a is a war crime, dude. It's a war crime. That's a war crime. Uh, abducting civilians is a war crime. Like, all of that is a war crime. All of it. All of it. Every last bit of it. It'd be one thing if they were attacking you know, strictly military institutions. We could have a debate about what that would mean, but, and they, they obviously did some of that as well, but they, they attacked normal people. And I've seen some people on the left be like, well, if they're a settler, then, you know, they're not a civilian. First of all, those aren't settlers there. Number one. Uh, so that doesn't even apply. And number two, that's a real ghoulish way of looking at something. It's a fucking war crime. What they pulled. It's a war crime. It's just not, it's just not defensible. You can say that uh, any any group of people has a right to self-determination and self-protection, literally any group of people, any, any, any uh, nation state or, or the like. And that is true, but there are certain rules of conduct by which that has to get um, 
has to work its way through. And just going after civilians the way they did is, is it's just, it, it's so outrageous and indefensible. I don't, I'm very surprised to see some folks try and make that claim. However, on the other side, look what's about to happen now, dude. Like they turned off all the water, all the electricity. Collective punishment, by the way, is also a war crime. It is also a war crime. So here's what I will tell you. I don't know what is next. Um, I, I have absolute genuine heartfelt sorrow for all of the Israelis affected by these terrible acts. I have genuine heartfelt sorrow for all of the Palestinians who have been under occupation for a long time. And now in particular, what's about to happen is it, we're headed towards very, 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 very dark times. I mean, I just feel like Gaza is about to get leveled and turned into ash and collective punishment is not, is not acceptable either. Um, but I feel like that's what's about to head. I mean, listen, they're calling it Israel's nine 11 and I live through nine 11 here. And if their 9-11 is anything like our 9-11, dude, the, the national mood here after the towers fell, I was 21 when the towers fell. I mean, I can just tell you, everyone around me was like, we got we to gotta get these guys back. Like, it's, it's payback time. And that I, I don't know if that's the national mood in Israel. It appears like a, a certain some factions it could be. I, I don't know. It looks like that's what's going to happen in Gaza. They're going to get their payback. Um, I think people underestimated the brutality of Hamas. Most experts had, uh, you know, surprised. But this is the reality too, like the Palestinian experience. The PLO, when I was a kid, they were called terrorists, but they were a secular organization. I'm not comparing PLO to Hamas. I'm just simply saying you had a secular organization in PLO, you had a secular organization in Palestinian Authority, and they couldn't get any deals. And now they're, again, through this occupation, Hamas has, through Qatar funding and everything else, and Iranian funding as well, has, even though they're not popular, by vast swaths of the Arab world, they have taken root and now they have engaged in literal fucking war crimes. And now it's all bad, dude. It's all bad. It's all bad. Like <laughs> two state solution. How what's going to be even left of Gaza? What's going to be even left of the West bank when this is all said and done, who the hell knows? And they don't want to do a single state because they'd be outnumbered. And I think they want to keep it a Jewish state. And so the, lots of problems there as well. Um, it's a mess, man. It's a disaster. It's a disaster in every fucking possible way. So I'm not one of these folks on the left who are like, well, you know, anything they do is great. Like, that's really not my view at all. I think what Hamas pulled is ghoulish and awful. I condemn it in the strongest possible terms. It's a fucking war crime, what they pulled, man. It's a war crime. But, you know, the occupation isn't helping anybody either. And collective punishment is not going to make anything better either. There is no military solution to what is happening. It's only a political solution. And if you've tried everything other than you know, peace. Um, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's going to be real bad. It's going to be very, 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 very bad. My only concern at this point, well, that's not true. It's not my only concern. One of my chief concerns is that this spreading to the wider, uh, you know, Hezbollah in the North or Southern, Southern Lebanon, but Northern Israel, like, is a war going to open up on that front as well? Like, and are they going to destroy parts of Lebanon again? Like, you know, my mom's been dead since 2003, this month, 20 years ago this month, you know. And there's, <clears throat> I'm certainly not glad she's gone, but I'm glad that she missed, you know, the bombings in, uh, what were they, 06, 07, 06, and whatever might happen here. And, of course, she missed that big blast that happened on the Beirut. Remember, there, the, there was the, 
that that substance that was stored that was unstable that exploded right and nothing to do with anybody's war but just central lebanese mismanagement and um I, i'm glad she missed all that to be honest with you because she always had this like place in her mind of like beirut as you know right on the beach and the paris of the middle east and blah, blah. and of course she left during the war and everything and you know, there was some dialing that back, but it still held a place to her to watch, you know, what has happened there and what is happening now in Israel on, to, to all the different parts. I mean, it's a disaster every way you cut it. Everyone is, I mean, it's ho horrific what happened to the Israelis. Horrific, horrific. And what's about to happen to the folks and has been happening to the folks under occupation in Gaza is horrific. It's, it's, it's a disaster. It's a disaster everywhere. I'm kind of glad she missed that, to be honest with you. Kind of glad she missed that. Anyway, back to MMA. Okay, great question. Do you think that after Volkanovsky's success in wrestling last time out and the fairly limited spaces Islam found success in, although obviously repeated enough times to edge out a victory, that Volk can come out more aggressively, just being cautious of the points where Islam had taken advantage before and even look dominant, <coughs> excuse me, against a guy that has looked unbeatable for the most part. I apologize for the horrendous run sentence. Blah, blah, blah. Wake and bake kind of morning. Hell yeah. Love the content. Okay. Given his success in the wrestling last time out, da 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 da, -da that Volk can come out more aggressively. Just, I think he will come out more aggressively this time. He's got nothing to lose. And if he doesn't have his cardio up to where he ordinarily would, why wouldn't he? Like, if you know you don't have the cardio for five rounds hard, then you need to go right up front and take the fight to him because you're not going to have anything for him later. I suspect you might see something like that completely. I don't think that in any way Volkanovsky fears Islam. There was something, not fear, but there was something last time. There was something last time where Volkanovsky wasn't so sure how it was going to go, whether it was in clinch exchanges, whether it was scrambling, whether it was that switch stance right hook, the whole nine yards. There were times he just wasn't sure how that was going to go. And then after the, the round started to expire, he was like, oh, right, I can do this. You know. So the question is, will he have an answer for back control? By the way, the counter punching of Islam was a big factor in the first one. He might be opening up, but to what extent does that play another role where Islam has like this very underrated counterpunching that could play um, a factor? Does opening up open that up for Islam? So this thing about Islam, dude, he's very careful, doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He doesn't open up too easily. He only kind of opens up as he needs to. And the thing before is he was kind of fading down the stretch in that fight. Does Volkanovsky have the cardio to push him? That'll be kind of interesting as well, right? You know, if he does, then that could change the game. But if he doesn't and he can't push the pace late and it's Islam who gets to come on late, I mean, there's a lot of different factors here where if it had more time to develop, I think some of these bigger questions would be relevant. But 11 days coming off surgery, the whole, or what was it, wrist or whatever it was, for um, for him, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know how that's going to go. All right. Uh, I'm sure we got a bunch of questions. So if we do, I'll get to those now. Again, you don't have to contribute. If you want to, you can. If you don't, that's cool. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you just the same. All right, here we go. Uh, Luke, long-time listener, first-time chatter. How come no one has ever talked about the possibility Chimaev purposely missed weight against Diaz 
to purposely set up the Holland fight after their run-in backstage. People have done that a lot. I've seen a lot of folks suggest that. It's just, guys, you can say something, right? Hey, I think Chemayev did X for Y reason. Okay, fine. You can say that. What is the evidence for that claim? Right? It doesn't matter what you believe, in the words of Lieutenant Weinberg from A Few Good Men. What matters is what you can prove. What is the argument? What is the art? Not just the argument, but like what is the evidence to substantiate these claims? And people, you can say something like, hey, did Islam, or excuse me, did Shemaev miss weight against Diaz to set up the Holland fight? Sure. Okay. What's the evidence for the claim? Oh, well, he missed weight. Right? That's not evidence. That's just a thing that happened. Unless you have like a text being like, I'm going to miss weight. Like you have to have evidence for these claims. So you, anyone is allowed to be suspicious or something like that. That's fine. But um, you got to have evidence for your claims. Would you ever have Dave Meltzer? I love Dave as a guest on Morning Combat. Would love to see. Dude, I love Dave. I don't know what exactly we talk about because I think he's more into pro wrestling these days. But, dude, we had Dave on. I think well, I think he was on MMA Beat a couple times. I remember I worked with Dave at MMA Fighting for years. So I love Dave Meltzer. I mean, we don't have we don't like the same things. But, dude, Dave's the man. Dave Meltzer is the man. I got nothing bad to say about Dave. I love Dave Meltzer. He's been a treasure in this community. I, I, and I don't know about his wrestling takes. You know, some of you might be like, oh, I hate this take or this thing that he did. I don't know anything about that shit. I just know about the guy I worked with. He was great. He was great. Yeah. How will the UFC dropping USADA affect gambling? Great question. Which is now intrinsically tied to the UFC. Will betters be deterred due to less testing? Again, it will have... It will be a function of to what extent the new system is transparent and open. I think the UFC has probably thought about this, right? They have smart guys who work there. They have very smart people who work there. My guess is that they can't just resort to the commission system because that, even that, they would take betting on. But there has to be some degree of um, confidence in their program that the betters wouldn't feel bad about um laying money down now maybe it affects the odds i don't i'm not enough of a gambling expert to really know exactly the myriad ways in which it could play a role suffice to say after getting their bets or, or was it two canadian provinces like stopping betting on ufc products I, I would imagine that they're sensitive to these needs but again it would the devil will be in the details of what this new program is and without that i can't really say much did the UFC still drop USADA if either the current situation or the Mark Hunt lawsuit didn't happen or if the Mark Hunt lawsuit went poorly? Were both outcomes necessary to reach this decision? Probably, yes. Probably. I, I suspect that they were. Um, not one or the other, both probably in conjunction with some other stuff too, but it does seem like the Connor situation in particular was the straw that broke the camel's back, whereas the Mark Hunt situation, while relevant, more just kind of made them realize what legal liability looks like and how they can work around it. Understandably, too. Surprised you didn't open your USADA video with, hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm Luke Thomas, and I was right. Yeah, I wasn't going to do that, in part because um, there's still a lot of people who disagree, you know, um, and we don't really know what's next. But the, I had someone write me, oh, it was a great email, and they were being like, you know, I think you're being a little unfair about some of the arguments you were making and one of them was you know um one of the things i had said was 
I remember when USADA was introduced and I was trying to argue about some of the limits of anti-doping and folks being like, you know, this is necessary. Listen to the words I'm saying, necessary for the sport to go not just to the next level, but to basically be um, understood as fair and above board. And I'm like, well, if you remove it, you're saying it's no longer fair and above board. First of all, that doesn't even make sense because people would watch one and Bellator and everything else. Like none of these agencies and organizations are even bothering with this, but yet people still watch it. No problem. So that doesn't even hold up to basic scrutiny. But now that this is gone, my point being is you can't make an argument about how crucial and essential a service is. And then when the service gets yanked, you don't change your your actions. If you're actually saying that USADA, the gold standard, such as some folks have pronounced them to be, if you actually are arguing that this is essential, then what happens when it gets removed? It's not a matter of it's good or bad. You're, the argument was it was like critical. Well, if you still watch after a critical thing is removed, how critical was it to begin with? That's it's you know, and again, not everyone necessarily made that argument, but some folks did. Um, and I was I never understood the enthusiasm of that. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you becoming a member. How do I maintain my beard? I just don't really cut it that often. What kind of trimmer do you use? I have a Norelco, like a basic one. Seems you're always able to maintain a consistent volume. Uh, yeah, I mean, it looks like shit now because I haven't, you know, done much with it. I don't, I don't know how to answer these questions. I just grow it and then trim the outside. Like, it's like asking, how do you maintain a haircut? I go to the barber, you know. How's the weight loss going? I haven't heard you talking about it lately. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, man, I'm focused now more so. So um, do you guys know knees over toes guy? I think I told you guys this. I didn't hire him, but I hired one of his lieutenants to really kind of rebuild me. Because uh, I had, I have... So we guys remember when we did the Phil DeRue um, RSD for MK, right? We went down to, to I think it's Deerfield Beach or wherever that is. He, he did a couple tests on me. He, did, he looked at my rotator cuff. He thinks it's torn. Uh, so I've got a shoulder issue here. This knee is a mess. This hip is a mess. This right ankle is a mess. And so I hired this guy to kind of just like rebuild me. Like what could I really rebuild from scratch uh, without surgery? And I can tell you my ankle feels a lot better. The knee and the hip are coming along. Shoulder feels somewhat better. I'm, I'm only on the, like, you know, the fourth month of working with the guy. So it's going to be like the first three months were nothing but like rehabilitative exercises. So it's going to take some time. But um, my weight has maintained steady. Um, but I'm trying to rebuild everything on the inside. That's That's the thing I'm focusing on now. So today... What did we do? I do sled pushes, sled pulls. I did uh, banded pull-aparts to start. That's my warm-up, right? That's all timed and everything, and there's a rep count. Then I did all kinds of uh, rotator cuff work, um, pullovers. Then I did benching on, and then uh, lateral rows, all kind of timed on this program, and then dead hangs and farmer carries to kind of rebuild grip, posture, the whole nine yards. Like, it's a lot, dude. It's a lot. So, yeah, that's where we're at. Can you explain how when TJ tests positive, everyone discounts his career, but when Jones does, he's still the GOAT? Oh, that's an easy. Also, I'm about to graduate and want to move near or in a big city. Suggestions? Okay, let's start with the second one first. If you're about to graduate and you're about to move to a big city, you're going to be poor. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to be poor. That's not true for everybody. I know a buddy of mine got a job with Deutsche Bank right out of college out of JMU, shouts to my buddy Ted, but that ain't the norm. Most people are going to be just broke as fuck coming out of college, so that's the first thing I'll tell you. Just learn to be poor. 
to answer the question about TJ, guys, this is a very simple one. I'm not telling you what opinion to have on John Jones more broadly. But every time he had a run-in with USADA, it was ultimately either through the arbitration or USADA itself that later exonerated him. They never did that with TJ. They never came around and been like, oh, you see all these test results? It turns out that this is not really correct, that there is some other, you know, influencing or mitigating circumstance in the process here. That didn't happen. That did happen with John, at least in terms of the USADA issues that he ultimately ran into. There are some other ones that were not necessarily USADA related, so I, there's a broader picture there. But th that's very easy. USADA went out of their way to exonerate him after the fact. Yeah, simple. Uh, Preston writes, not saying USADA was awesome, but don't we need some form of testing in place for the athletes that want to compete clean? Again, this clean, dirty thing you guys keep bringing up, this is just verbiage from the war on drugs. Like, you you know, I'm not saying you have to stop because it's so ubiquitous at this point, but just understand what you're participating in when you use words like this, especially with the pay gap between entry level and top guys. Again, my view is people think that I want no anti-doping. There can be situations where none of the athletes want it and I don't care. Right. We've talked about this before. And it's not, it's not, 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 not one size fits all. If the athletes want it, then I'm okay with it completely. Um, if they have a buy-in, if they've negotiated something like, do you guys ever hear me complain about the anti-doping protocol in the NFL? Do you guys ever hear me complain about it in the NBA? Never, never. You don't ever hear me say a word because their players association to go to the negotiate this shit on their behalf. What is there to complain about? The athletes want it. The league wants it. They worked out a deal. <laughs> like, I, that's it. Like, prob like, this is a very workable solution. You know? So I'm not against this idea that, that, like, people think I want no testing. There can be situations where I don't think it's necessarily useful. But there's many situations where it can be useful. So, of course, the answer is that. But the question is how you do it. And what processes are involved to protect the rights of athletes? That's really my only hang-up. And in a situation where you have independent contractors who just have no say over anything and shit just gets forced on them, yeah, I don't like that so much. Ray asks, why does America give unconditional support to Illinois? I think you mean Israel. Um, I don't know the full history of it. It's just been the condition that I've grown up in um all my life i don't know i don't know i don't know the answer to that i don't know where exactly that originates and why it has been i mean you know listen they have been attacked by their neighbors many times on some level you can understand it uh and there's been some unclarity about the evolving peace process and there was some hope with the oslo accords that you know we'd reach something usable uh we just never did we just never did um I don't think there's really anything wrong with, to be clear about like supporting um, uh, Israel as a Jewish state. I don't really have any issue with that at all. The issue is, okay, great. Now what are we going to do about the Palestinians? Like we can't just leave them under these conditions. It's not going to work for anybody. And I think, I think all of the evidence really supports that. Like, does any of this seem to be working for anybody? Who is it working for? Who is this situation working for? Um, and you might be say Hamas, but they're about to get fucking, they're about to get leveled. They're about to get turned into ash. Doesn't work for them. I mean, who's it working for? 
you know so that's my really my only hang up is like who's who's winning in this shit um you know yeah it's just a disaster it's just a disaster so i don't really have an issue with it israeli state i don't have an issue with the jewish state i'm like i'm pretty cool with that but we got to do something about the palestinians like we can't just leave them in the situation that they've inherited and, and also by the way you know egypt and jordan not doing many favors either we should be very clear about that too so you know someone's asking thoughts about the situation in gaza it's just heartbreaking it's heartbreaking sad to see folks parroting propaganda which justifies the ethnic cleansing of palestinians this person writes yeah i mean i'm not going to get too far down that rabbit hole i, I don't really want to engage in that but suffice to say collective punishment folks is also a war crime that's not me that's not my rules of war crimes that's the international norms you know it's a war crime too and um it's going to be a, it's been a humanitarian disaster for a long time it's going to get worse and i fear greatly for what is next i i hope you guys do too um like i said man i'm glad my mom's not around to see it I, I really am like i miss her every day i'm so glad she's not here to see this it would it would the distress that it would cause her would um yeah i'm just i'm glad she missed it to be honest with you i really am like every day there's never a day where I don't like, oh, I wish my mom was here. That, that never happens. But there's many times where I turn on the news and I see this or I read the news or whatever. And I'm like, I'm so glad she's not seeing this shit. So glad. Can Tom Lawler sue USADA? I don't think so. I don't think that they're legally liable, even though what they did was unethical. Uh, Billy Potato, who's a member, writes, do you believe the decision to abandon USADA mandatory testing was made in part because the UFC wants to maintain its position that fighters are independent contractors, not employees? But if they make everything in-house, or mo somewhat more in-house anyway, then that if they extend their control, that would undermine it, right? So the difference between an independent contractor and an employee, they have a checklist you can go through. The rule on that is, for folks who may not know, you can look this up. Like, what's the difference between an employee and what's the difference between an independent contractor? And various, you know... Uh, uh, well, not just there's checklists you can see that will show you it. You know, if, if this, this happens, it, it is likely they're an independent contractor. If this happens, they more fit the bill of an employee. And of course, if they have a legal designation, then that's the end of it. But you're asking like ways in which this could be reinterpreted by a court or something else. Um, one of the big things you should look at is how much control does the employer have? The more control, the more likely they are to be an employer. It's not if they fill these 10 things and they're definitely one or the other. It's more an approximate picture. So if they're going, and again, this is an if, if they're going in a direction where there is more control, that would actually undermine their ability to say that they're independent contractors. At least in theory, it would do that. So we shall see. Do you think it's possible that Shemaev missed weight on purpose? Again, same thing. Guys, I appreciate the donation. But you you, you got to have some kind of evidence to substantiate these claims. Otherwise, you're just hypothesizing, which is a fun exercise, but it's ultimately not very illuminating. How is Paulo Costa still ranked six? Other than washed Rockhold, which doesn't help the ranking, he hasn't won since 2019. Cancels misses weight. Guys, I don't fucking make the rules. I don't understand the rankings at all. Guys will lose title fights, and they'll be number one contenders. And I'm like, how, how is that fucking possible? Oh, well, they only lost to the guy above. Right. That doesn't make him number one contender. That pushes him down in the rankings. You you have climbing to do after you lose. Thank you, fellow namesake, for joining. Buenas tardes, Luke. How shocking it would be if Endeavor came out of nowhere and purchased Bellator. 
Yeah, that would have antitrust implications. That would be bad for the industry. You don't you don't want UFC to purchase Bellator. I know some folks are like, oh, that'd be cool. And it would be cool to see some of those guys fight UFC guys. That'd be cool. But, you know, buying up the competition like that, that would not be great. That would not be great. It'd be very bad. Do you now know how it feels taking a win on USADA like most did about you pushing the vaccine and lockdowns? I don't know what this means. Do you now know how it feels taking a win on USADA like most did about? <laughs> sure, Rick. I don't know what the fuck this means, but thank you for the donation. I appreciate it. Uh, also, what did Rogan say to you? One day, boys and girls. One day. One day. Uh, do you, did you see Logan call Danis a predator before bringing out Chris Hansen? I did. I did. And that fucking guy came out there and was like, why don't you have a seat over there? I was like, oh my God, dude. Like the, the level, I'll tell you what, man, they took, they took the circus theatrics to a new level, right? They had these guys in the cage face off, like, like, like a diver swimming with great white sharks or some shit. It's it's something it, it catches your attention it does that i mean it's dumb as shit but it catches your attention how do all these changes in 294 impact buys i don't think they impact buys negatively at all right because like on paper you can easily make the argument that this card is now stronger so i think it actually helps them potentially i mean you've got in volk islam and kamaru uh you have two current champions and a former champion so three of the four have held and or still do held a belt Oh, that's great. That's great visibility. Cody from OK again, your fifth black fan by my count. My wife and I just started BJJ at the Lovato School. Yeah, dude. Shouts to Rafael Lovato. He's a real one. What free tutorials do you recommend for rookies who want to practice at the house? Um, most of your practicing should not be at the house. It should be at the gym. God, there is one channel that's so good. I tell you what, you know what you can do? How about this? Bernardo Faria. You can check out his BJJ Fanatics YouTube channel. Full of free stuff. Full of free stuff. And, you know, listen, it's fun to go on YouTube and, like, pick this and pick that and kind of try them out. But if you're, like, really starting out, just go to the fucking gym. Dude, if Lovato is training you, you can't get much better than that. Like, literally in the world, you can't get much better than that. Gi or no gi. Like, he's that good. And he's that experienced and, you know, loves jujitsu. Just, just go see him. Just go see him. Shouts to Vinny. More shouts to Vinny. Uh, Yvonne asks, do you believe they could use the threat of drug failure punishment to further pressure fighters into accepting new contracts and or fights? Certainly hope not. I certainly hope not. That would be real bad. That would be real and potentially illegal. Uh, no, that would be bad. I don't, I don't think they'll do that. I, I hope they won't do that. Luke, uh, no thoughts on the KSI Fury fight. We are doing a fight companion. So I'll give you my thoughts on Saturday. But it, I mean, guys, I don't give a shit about these kinds of fights. It's just donks who can't fight fighting each other. It's a circus show, and it's kind of fun for that, I guess. You know, but like... I, I had the Italian opera moment with Spence and Crawford right like this is a very far cry from that so you know listen if you guys like it i'm not here to take you take it away from you and the pay-per-view is not too expensive 54.99 i know folks were belly aching about it that's not that expensive relatively speaking anyway um it might be a fun day it might be fun but it's you know like low level fighting doesn't do much for me thank you to 
Veloslav. I'm sure I said that wrong. Uh, Captain V says, congrats on 500 episodes of MK. What are your top five MK moments? Ooh. Uh, I'm feeling these margaritas as a low light and a highlight. That's one. Um, I think when they came to my house, that was a big one for me. That was a big one. Um, BC doing the math problem was a fun one. Me vomiting after doing a um, pregame preview was another one. God, there's been so many. Uh, the haircut with uh, Dion was great. I don't know, man. There's been a bunch. Like we we put up the 50 best. You guys can go watch those. You referenced the short shelf life of MMA fandom. I was all in in 2020 between price, fighter pay, politics, etc. I think your words ring true. People don't believe me until it happens to them, and then they're like, "Oh, right." You know, it's just I don't. It's a weird life cycle. I don't entirely understand why it happens in MMA in ways it doesn't seem to happen in other sports, but it does. Chris says, how many signatures would a petition need for you to do two live streams per week? We need more. You, depending on how things go, you may not need one at all. <laughs> um, so uh, stay tuned, boys and girls. Stay tuned. Uh, Paulie says, I know you now consider yourself a Dodge Omni, but your hairline hasn't given an inch. General Lee could have used it at Gettysburg. Yeah, I know, but I'm thinning out a little bit up top. I appreciate that, Paulie. It's very nice of you. Uh, Greg says, Luke, you've mentioned how profound your philosophy degree has been to shaping. It's not my degree that shaped it. It's the philosophy classes. Like the degree doesn't mean much, but the classes themselves were great. Uh, by chance, do you have experience with debating in any form in school too? So yeah, I debated in high school for just one year, just one year, um, just my sophomore year. And the, I did policy. There's two kinds. There's policy. And then Lincoln Douglas, I did policy. And the year I did it was uh, resolved that we should substantially change our policy towards the People's Republic of China. That's what we had to debate, right? You could take the affirmative or the negative. And then um, I did real well. Um, we made it to state championships. Uh, we bottomed out there, but it was my first year. I never did it my freshman year. And then I moved to a new high school. I went to two different high schools, one freshman, sophomore, one junior, senior. And then the second school I went to didn't have a debate team. So that was that. That was that. Oh, my man Ant says you're going to be watching Logan Paul versus Dennis live. You know it, Ant. Yeah, we're going to be doing uh, a, a watch along, a fight companion, whatever the fuck they're called on Saturday. So that should be stupid. That should be very stupid. Yeah. I'll probably take an edible or seven. You know. Using the most modern judging system, Reed writes. Thank you for the donation, Reed. Which fights do you think under the older judging criteria would have a different result? So, for example, most obvious to me is Romero Whitaker 2. But which fights comes to mind? Okay, using the most modern judging system, which fights do you think were the older? Fuck, that's a great question. I'd have to think about that for a second. Um, man, what a great, what a what a great question! What a great question! Oh, the easiest one would have to be uh, Boz Rutten and Kevin Randleman. That'd have to be the easiest one. Have you guys ever seen that one? Not a great fight. Boz Rutten was underneath basically the entire time Kevin Randleman and was like, the best way I can explain it is he was a little more jujitsu-y <laughs> than, than Kevin Randleman and then won. And you're like, the fuck? Like, how did this happen? So that one would be a big one. But dude, that's a great, great question. 
Reed, I wish I had a slightly better answer for you. Like this, these questions that are so good, it takes time to to really think about it. But like, think about any close robbery from before, <coughs> or you know, disputed decision. How might the modern criteria influence that? Please do a live show next time you guys are back in NYC. Uh, we are going to be in studio for MK the Monday after two ninety four. So that should be fucking great. Uh, Bobby asks, did you watch motocross of nations? You definitely should. I did not. The top motocross guys are without a doubt the best endurance athletes in the world. Is that true? Now listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying they're not substantial athletes or some of the best endurance athletes in the world, but are they the best endurance? Like how about the fucking guys who run like Ironman marathons, you know, aren't they? I, I don't know, but I'm asking. Apoplectic Spock. That's a great name. Um, Kevin writes, who's a member, always appreciate the effort you put into providing a considered perspective. Keep up the great work. Been following me since you began XM. Thank you, bro. I appreciate that. It's very nice of you. And then this gentleman writes, you were spot on with the pronunciation. <laughs> Veloslav? Uh, Veloslav? Thanks for the content. After last night's you saw the video, I was rock hard for this live chat. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a little much. That's a little much. Hey, man, we had a great crowd here today. I really appreciate this, guys. If you guys want to reach me, you certainly can. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Oh, yes. Uh, hello. Give me the, uh, give me, you can hear him playing that shit, right? Here we go. 561 votes. Oh, I don't know which one this one is. Islam versus Charles 2, 49%. Oh, what's the better fight? With 561 votes, you guys have Islam Charles 2 at 49%. Islam Volk 2 on 11 days notice at 51%. Woo! Close. Very close. Interesting. Very, 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 very close. Wow. That is great. All right. Good shit, guys. Good shit. Uh, I'll tell you, can you take that off the screen? Because I don't even know where the fuck that... Oh, yeah. Hurt, hide current comment. I can do that. There we go. All right. Thank you. Oh, there's one more, I think. Yes. Last one. Last one. Based on how the last fight went, which camp do you think is more excited about the Alex versus Islam rematch? Uh, well, I'll tell you this much. Probably both teams are very excited, but I saw Javier Mendez tell the boys at Submission Radio that they're excited about it because they feel like they have unfinished business. Remember, the narrative coming out was that, you know, maybe Makachev won, but Volkanovsky really, you know, maybe should have won or, you know, really showed how great he was, which is true. He did show how great he was, but that, you know, one more crack at it, he's going to break through. And I think that those guys don't like that at all. And I think they feel like that's very false. And I feel like they're looking forward to, in their minds, proving that true, not this Saturday, but the following. Can't wait to see him try. Can't wait to see him try. What a fucking fight that's going to be. I just hope that my worst fears are not realized because you're dealing with some quality bubbas up there. All right? All right. That's it for me. Thank you guys so much. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, this will go on podcast tonight. We'll change the thumbnail. Lots of fun stuff. So I appreciate you guys tuning in. Until next time, stay frosty, boys and girls.